Hello and welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape, and you're listening to episode two of the 2018 Summer Long Play Sydney Architecture Festival episodes, Why Architects Matter. This was a keynote presentation from Professor Flora Samuel, and it covers the vexed question, does architecture cost money? Or does it add, in Flora's words, immeasurable value? In this keynote, Professor Samuels discusses how design professionals must urgently develop a 21st century evidence-based approach to communicating their work to those outside the field. At a time when ever greater competition, she argues that architects must prove value at every level. Good afternoon. Um, I'd like to welcome you all here to this wonderful room. Uh, my name is Melanie Bell-Smith. Um, I wear a few different hats, but um, I am an architect and I do believe very strongly in the uh, essence of um, what Flora is talking about in her book, Why Architects Matter. So I have great pleasure in introducing Professor Flora Samuel this afternoon. Um, if you haven't read her book, I believe it's mandatory reading for those in our profession who care about its future, for those who care about how we are educating our future architects. Um, uh, Professor Samuel is um, at the University of Reading and established a new architecture school there. Uh, And it was fascinating to interview, I had the opportunity to interview her last night and to hear about um, some of the things that she's trying to do both as an educator, but I think very much through her research agenda and how she's encouraging architects to um, not just rediscover their value, but put, but actually articulate that and be able to present that and make a great case for why architects matter. So without further ado, I'd like to um, invite Flora to come up and present her talk today. Thank you. Well, um, hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming along today on this amazing Sunday. Gosh, I'm looking at the sailing boats out there, and, you know, you're in this darkened room. Uh, And thank you very much to to Tim for um, inviting me all over the way here. Such an honour to be here. And um, such an amazing room. Um, You know, I feel sort of uplifted by the architecture enormously. It uh, sort of appeals to the transcendent in me. And I, you know, this is... uh, uh, really at the core of why architects matter. I mean, who here has felt better, had been made to feel better by their environment? Can you think of a building that makes you feel better? Yes, thank God for that. (laughs) Well, anyway, that shows us why I'm doing this talk to an extent, (laughs) because, uh, you know, we all know and we believe that architecture can can make you feel better and has a profound impact on um, life uh, and the way we lead it. Um, But it's really, really very difficult thing to communicate. And I think we've really, uh, certainly in the UK, really failed to communicate this very well. So I'm going to do, I've got an awful lot of slides. Uh, you know, I kept looking at these TED Talks and thinking, gosh, should I have no slides? But actually, what I'm trying to do here is to um, bring up a lot of things that are going on in, uh, in the scene that I work in uh, to try and inspire and, um, uh, yeah, to inspire you that these things are happening and these are things that can be done. Uh, so I lead on research at the RIBA, and this is a new role, um, and... Um, 
it's very exciting. The word research, the R word as we used to call it, used to completely upset and freak out architects in the UK, but really uh, it's now fundamental to our strategic plan and, and the, the way that the profession's going forward. Um, this, this talk is, uh, I think I was invited because I wrote this book, Why Architects Matter, um, very much about this issue that uh, we aren't getting across a sense of our value. And uh, because I'm an academic, I like to sort of set things out in advance. Um, this is what I'm going to talk about, these things. Uh, a little bit about the problem and then in going into thinking about how uh, we can be express our, our value as architects. And the book is written for lay people and really for clients, actually. And my hope was it was going to be read by people in the construction industry, other, other construction professionals, to try and get design back onto the agenda. Because I'm told the, recent, the most recent generations of, say, quantity surveyors have never known a world when architects actually might lead the team, uh, which is quite scary. Uh, and the way I work is, uh, well, it's participatory action research, get in there and do stuff with people. And that's why, as an academic, I've gone and got really, really involved in the RIBA. I do an awful lot of stuff around archives and uh, the history of institutions and uh, the profession. And uh, this is largely UK-based, um, but I hope that there are things in here that are of relevance to... Um, you guys here in, in Australia. Uh, I have, um, while I've been here, I've detected there's a certain kind of people talking about uh, the things going on in other parts of the world and a kind of, maybe a little bit of um, a, an insecurity about what's going on outside in the rest of the world or up towards Europe or maybe even towards Great Britain. Uh, and all I can say is I think that they shouldn't be feeling like this because clearly there's a magnificent architecture, cultural, architectural culture here, uh, which I think you should be uh, really, really proud of, especially in the context that um, so much, and I'm going to enter into the section on you know, the, the problem, the issues, uh, that so much of architecture of Britain is like this. This is UK architecture. It's nothing to be proud of at all. And actually, this library, which is built at the end of my road, where I live in Cardiff in Wales, is what got me on this whole journey. I've written, written five books on Le Corbusier, and, and I absolutely love tectonic delight and meaning and narrative and everything. But this building at the end of my road was so awful. And I wrote to the architects, and the architects said, well, good design costs money. And this is something I fundamentally re refute. Well, I believe that good design adds untold value. Um, and I think this is something that we're really, really poor at getting across. And then I would talk about this with friends at dinner and stuff, and they just didn't even, this building didn't even trouble them. It's a, it's a, you know, I could ask you to guess what kind of a building it is, but it's a, you might take some time. It's actually a library. And it's, it's a, a, on a site which has got a, a river and playgrounds and all these things. And, you know, we're trying to get people to use libraries, and it's just terrible. So, yeah, this was my nemesis, this building, and this is what got me into the whole thing of what the problem is. So, um, 
the problem, for, uh, I think, for architects uh, is not helped by the media, and this is one particularly nasty example of what the media might be saying about architects, but it's everywhere. Uh, architecture bashing in the UK is an absolute national sport. Um, they, you know, because we are, and, we, and, and added to by people like Prince Charles and stuff like that, just really doesn't help. Uh, you, know, we, you know, people cite back to the egomaniac world of, of, of you know, the fountainhead, and uh, I mean, and a strange aside to that is the architect being the sexiest profession, apparently. But, you know, there we go. If you're a man, not if you're a woman, um, and uh, <laughs> if you're a, if you're a woman, it's the sexiest profession is nurse. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, there's all sorts of really dysfunctional things about architectural architects' image, and we all get bundled together as one thing when one of the things that's core to my book is that architects are all different and we have to get across this difference. Um, I think the architects got quite a lot of pride uh, from, get quite a lot of pride from this archi-speak thing, decoding theory-speak, as though somehow you're entering into a club that you have an inward-looking language, and therefore you're getting more value. And I think this stinks, and we have to really, really get away from this stuff and speak the same language as other human beings if we want to be taken seriously. Um, and of course, we have design and build contracts, which have come in and taken, um, uh, so I think something like 90% of UK architects are actually employed by a building contractor uh, and uh, are very, very low down the food chain. And you know, we've allowed, the, our, um, the profession has a, a, a allowed others to take away the management of, of buildings, which is a desperately, um, been a desperate shame, and the impact on the built environment has been terrible. So that's the problem. I don't want to. I don't want to harp around on the, the problem too much. Um, one. So we go back to. The, if we go back to the beginning of the stated purpose of the profession, uh, and and um, in the uh, in the UK, the RIBA was set up for the promotion and facilitation, the acquirement of knowledge. It was all about architectural knowledge, um, uh, and. I think this is something that we've, we've kind of lost. So that was the stated purpose, but actually, uh, but the unstated, the kind of tacit thing behind the um, creation of the profession was about raising public confidence in architecture. And this is a, a Dickens image of Mr. Pecksmith, you know, who, who's a laughable kind of character in, uh, I think, Martin Chuzzlewit. Um, but actually, there was a real feeling that architects were charlatans in the, in the in Victorian period, and they had, and a group of um, architects got together, they realized that they needed to set themselves apart from builders and other kind of people. Um, but in order for that to happen, they had to have a special body of knowledge, which was why the RIBA was set up around this enormous great library. And I think this is a thing that we've lost. Part of the stuff that happened at the beginning of the profession was this debate about uh, being an art or a science. And I think this dogs us all the way through. You know, what is the nature of our knowledge and, and how can it be ca captured and uh, put out into the world? And I do uh, believe that the highest echelons of being an architect is an, is an artistic endeavor. But very, very much the large bulk of what we do is um, I think can be explained, can be justified, and um, uh, has very sort of sound reasoning behind it that, that people can understand if we talk about it. Um, so 
this has been a big bogey for the profession, uh, this art, architecture, art, science debate. Um, and whether it's an art or a science absolutely um, impacts on how we generate knowledge, because if you're in, and also how building projects are managed. Um, so if you're an art, they are unmanageable by others, um, but people don't understand and get into the processes. Um, but if you are a more scientific project, uh, then you, you know, it is something that other people can be let into. Now, I think in all of this, there's a world of um, professional um, judgment which comes through practice, and I'll come back to that. So what is this thing, architectural knowledge? Um, and, well, Frank Duffy of the uh, first global architecture firm, DGW, uh, wrote a wonderful book, Architectural Knowledge, and there's Frank... Um, about a year or so ago. Uh, I think he's a profound uh, writer on um, the profession. And he, he writes that architectural knowledge is stacking up all around practices all over the place, but people just are not using it properly. Um, so uh, despite the construction, this huge edifice of do's and don'ts, how we should do architecture, um, the knowledge base of architects remains remarkably unclear. People are very unclear about what architects know. And so this thing, the control of a body, body of knowledge, which is the characteristic of a profession, has, uh, was never really secured, I would argue. Um, so um, the profession spent a lot of time focusing on nuances of aesthetics and form, when I think it should be focusing in parallel, but as well, uh, but really on improving the relationship between people and the built environment. You know, this is, we re it's such a rich and interesting and complex issue that we really do not know enough about, and that's been to our detriment. So architects are using quite poor knowledge. Um, so we did this focus group with a bunch of practitioners at the RIBA on what kind of knowledge architects do use. And uh, it's, it's a kind of matrix of uh, most used least used, most accessible, least accessible. And what it showed was that the knowledge that architects use comes from their mate at the next desk or Google, that that is the knowledge that they tend to use. The, the knowledge that they are least likely to use is an academic refereed journal, which uh, is the highest quality of knowledge and which isn't actually trying to sell you a thristling toilet cubicle or something else like that. And they're just not... So this is a really sad indictment on acad academia. Um, so there's a whole lot of being knowledge being chucked out that actually architects are not, being, not using, which is why architects constantly reinvent the wheel. Uh, and, and I think which we have a very... The construction industry, certainly in the UK, is known for its desperate lack of innovation. You know, you might see a few bits of architect-type innovation in the world, but actually that's not the whole story. Uh, and a lot of it comes back down to this thing of post-occupancy evaluation, of actually going back to buildings to check whether they do what you plan them to do. So uh, in the UK, apparently 3% of architects go back to their building to see if it worked. And sometimes I do this talk and people say, oh, as much as that, you know. <laughs> You know, if people are overwhelmed by that 3%, and, and yeah, it's mind-blowing, you know, it's just mind-blowing how other, prof you know, other professions, it, it would just not be acceptable um, to do this. So we're trying to make post-occupancy evaluation into the new normal uh, at the RIBA. Yeah, so typical architects, once you've got their fees, you never see them again. Um, 
uh, you know, I've, uh, I've heard this described as three F's of architecture, finish, photo, and F off. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's, again, it's part of this architecture bashing thing that goes on all over the place. So we as architects, we sit in, the, uh, in, in an audit culture, the value agenda, and it's something that I think really scares, scares us. This, this dragon was driven, drawn by an architect, the dragon of measurement culture. My God, what's going to happen? Um, so, but we do, we live in a neoliberal uh, culture of audit, um, and architects really don't like to see themselves as an increment of economic performance, and not even a very good one at that. But we... You know, it's a game we have to play, and I, I come from a kind of feminist standpoint where you have to name things, show them, even quantify them, and then to make them discussed, and then you can start to take away the, those flawed namings. But you have to name things to bring things out into the field. Um, so, you know, lo looking at where is the value of architects, we did a research project and uh, on this, and you know, this is a, a bookshelf in a Chinese practice, but it could be in any practice anywhere in the world. This is the kind of books that architects have in their practices. And I would say there's pretty much nothing in that, those books that will say anything about the value of architects. And we've tried, we've looked for it. And I'm guilty of chucking out many books that people you know, have no value uh, in this respect. So if you wanted to find out a bit more about the value of architects, you might look at this body of knowledge, which is the referee journals, the ones that architects never, ever look at. Um, but there isn't a tremendous amount in there either. Uh, and you, or you might, and you probably have best luck looking at this body of knowledge, which is so-called grey literature. This is the um, uh, industry documents that are chucked out by uh, industry bodies, charities, and so on all the time. And I think there was a great bit of uh, res Australian research, actually, which showed how much money was spent on chucking out this grey literature and how little of it actually had any impact or was ever read. Part of the problem is it's not searchable by library databases, so it's incredibly difficult for um, architects or anybody to keep up with what's going on. But so none of these things really are going to say, say much about the value of architects. So we, we did a whole research project on this. We focused on the grey literature, and we found out that there was very little mention of architecture or architects and far too much focus on the product, product of buildings rather than the process. You know, if you want to show um, the value of architects, you, you can't start with this is a building because a building is a, obviously a collaborative effort. You've got to show how the architect added to the process. And generally, there was a huge confusion about titles, role skills in the built environment, into landscape and, and planning and so on. So really, uh, and we just conducted a uh, survey um, uh, with the Ar Architectural Council of Europe on what's known about the value of architects, and it's showing a similarly absolutely flimsy baseline of information caused partly about um, terminology and names. Um, and this um, isn't helped, the confusion about what architects, their value are and who they are, isn't helped by the, the way in which architectural practices have changed. A lot of architectural practices, um, like these um, professional services firms, really, really huge mega firms like Acom and Perkins and Will, they're, they're full of architects, but they're also full of other kinds of professional too. But they might be architectural firms. So the, the whole situation is incredibly blurry and uh, messy. And uh, yeah, I don't, I'm, we had a conversation about this last night. You know, the, the, the future of the word architect is an interesting thing. Uh, professional titles, you know, are, they, are they what we need? 
So what um, we argued in this research project was that there are architects have different kinds of value and they're, they're playing to different audiences. Um, cultural architects, iconic, you know, uh, arts organisations, branding, place branding, city branding, that, that kind of thing. Um, social architects, um, delivering social value, um, education, identity, community, and um, knowledge architects. I call these, well, knowledge architects are people who are organising systems and um, um, maybe not making designing buildings, but designing way, a, a sort of more like management consultancy or designing user experiences and journeys and other kinds of things that we have to promote, I think, as part of what architects have to offer. I don't think any architect is mutually, these are mutually exclusive, and some firms will be doing all of these things. But I think... Um, it's important to be clear about what kind of a practice you are, what your value base are, because um, you need clients who come from a similar value base uh, for, for the projects to work well in a swimming kind of a way. Um, so I think I really am arguing for the subdivision of architect types so that people can be a bit more clear and, one, and not see that architects are warring with each other, Norman Foster jumping on an aeroplane somewhere and somebody else dishing out lollipops in a, in a, in a local school, you know, talking to people about what they want. You know, these are, it's a huge profession and a huge range of stuff going on. So this has happened, in, this is the UK Green Book, the Treasury Green Book, and it's the, the, the how the UK government um, decides to spend its money. And it, up until March this year, it was all based on economic value. And then far be it for me to say anything good about the UK government at the moment, but they did, at that moment, they introduced socioeconomic value. So now, in theory, the UK government is making its decisions based on social value as well as economic value. And this harks back to um, a law that came in in 2012, the Social Value Act, which is really um, changing... Um, procurement of buildings and I think it's an incredible opportunity for architects to at last get across uh, uh, something that's really core to what they do. So this is just Croydon, a borough in London uh, and this is their guide to uh, inspiring creating social value in Croydon um, and oops I think I missed a slide there um, maybe I didn't but, uh, so, but when they're trying to talk about social value in terms of buildings they just are talking in terms of jobs created and apprenticeships and things like that. And what we are really working on here is trying to demonstrate the, uh, we're de developing a toolkit with lots of experts, and it may be very flawed, but it's an important start, um, to uh, get across the social value generated by buildings in terms of things like uh, active lifestyles, bringing people, communities together, um, positive feelings of well-being in relationship to views of nature and natural light and so on. Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to subdivide things that the building can deliver in terms of social value. And actually, we're going to try and monetize it. Because the world that we live in now, we have to monetize. And it, obviously, it, it's totally bogus monetizing social value of you know, what we all know. Architecture makes a real difference. But I mean, I'm a big fan of this book, The Value of Everything. And uh, I think there are other kinds of books coming out by economists which are starting to show how flawed the variables are that economists filled into their, fill into their models. So we need to play the game and get our, our message across about what we do into the uh, economic models um, that are 
being used by government. Um, it's desperately important. I really recommend this book. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Okay, so we've got a whole issue about what is value, uh, audit culture, and the way in which decisions are made in um, current society. Uh, and we as architects have to place ourselves within this and to be visibly useful. So these are a few things in my that I think I'm going to make, recommend for how to become a valuable architect, an architect that is valued by uh, policy and by clients. Um, and these ideas have been generated with a lot of other people in, in the course of my work with the RIBA and, and other places. So number one, uh, architects need to be professional. And what does this mean? Um, I argue that the well pillars of professionalism are you have to be ethical, and we're going to talk about that this, this afternoon. Um, a tremendous amount of architects are not ethical at all. Um, what can I say? And somebody alerted me to the fact that there are architects in the USA designing death chambers, which I had never even thought of in, in American prisons. Um, and what got part, one of the reasons got me out of practice, actually, was the clients I had wanted to do everything on the black market, cash in hand economy and all that kind of stuff. So even in Britain, it's uh, rife, let alone in Italy or, you know, in other parts of the world. Um, but we've got to try and be ethical because that's what having a t professional title means, that we are looking for the public good. We've got to use the best quality of knowledge. And I've already illustrated to you how UK architects are actually using incredibly dodgy knowledge as the basis of their decisions. And they have to have this thing, professional judgment. And I think that's uh, an area we haven't done enough work on. So, um, so being ethical, um, a geographer, this is McNeil writes very well about architects on the outside. If we didn't design it, somebody else would, um, is a real worrying abdication of uh, ethical responsibility. And um, you know, it might seem drastic, but I actually think that architects should not be designing unethical things. Okay, that might mean that there were a lot less architects uh, employed in this world, but they shouldn't be employed doing unethical things. Um, yeah, well, we'll go into more of this this afternoon. Um, but so um, this is a, an interesting, this is a very good book just come out by Simon Foxall on professionalism in the built environment. And this is a um, CS, uh, the way in which some of the biggest firms in, in, in the world respond to issues of corporate social responsibility. You know, and they're not doing tremendously well on this. So ethics is very high up the agenda. And I like this thing, the Institute of Civil Engineers in, the, in England, they have this toolkit, just say no. Uh, you know, got a problem, you're thinking about this bridge in a bad area or whatever, what do you do? You go through this process, which I think is a, an interesting start. And actually the RABA is really, really pushing for um, uh, ethics and sustainability uh, are coming absolutely to the fore as commitments of the profession and I think about time too. Um, this is, uh, I'm working on a research project at the moment with Santa Thomas University in Manila and Richie, my colleague there, took this photograph. This is what it's like in Manila when it rains. You know, it's just not funny. It's deeply not funny. Um, and we are responsible for this. Okay. So we have to be ethical, we have to use high quality knowledge. And this is a photograph of the DEG Knowledge Center. I mentioned Frank Duffy and DGW, the first you know, big 
giant global um, practice. They were absorbed into ACOM. Um, and, but they, the way that they made their business uh, was uh, by touting their knowledge. So their knowledge center, and they would say to practices, they would say to clients, we have this database of knowledge on what works. And actually, this was very, very convincing in, in developing their clients on workplace design and so on and so forth. So they were the first practice that really, really pushed this. Increasingly, uh, so architects rarely write about their work, and but increasingly architects are writing about their work in a very rigorous way and putting it into referee journals, these things that uh, are the best quality knowledge. Now, increasingly, they are becoming freely available on the internet because um, governments are realising they're paying for the research to happen. Why should then uh, professionals have to then pay to get access when it's supposed to be free? It's already been paid for by the taxpayer. Um, so there is really, really good stuff coming through. And I, that was a, a nice example from the Paris practice, Atelier d'Architecture Autogérée. But um, so this is a paper we did on post-occupancy evaluation and building research and information. So the big debate happening in these journals, which many, many architects will not be party to, um, uh, and this is happening in the, in the best, in, in you know, very, very carefully refereed language. So what kind of, uh, how do we make sure we use the best kind of knowledge? Well, one of the things that we've set up, and this is the thing I'm most proud of in my entire career that we've set up, um, is this thing called the Research Practice Leads Network. And this is um, about, well, it's growing all the time. These are some of the practices. We have uh, people who lead on research in um, about 40 practices in London and a little bit around, um, and we're setting up regional other research practice leads network, and we meet and we share good practice. And this is when we began. This is design research projects that are happening with practitioners, uh, talking to other practitioners, because the research that our practitioners like the best, understandably, is research done by other practitioners. Um, so, and it's growing and growing and growing this network and uh, becoming a wonderful testing bed for all sorts of things. And I'm amazed at the um, generosity with, with which practices share the things that they're up to and their incredible innovations. I mean, one, one, one innovation that's come to the fore recently is this one practice who is using artificial intelligence for the development of their office intranet so that their office intranet is um, learning about how the people in the office use their knowledge. And I think this is an amazing start because office intranets are all bespoke. They're not collecting data in any kind of uniform way um, and they're not very effective. So that's just one example of a, pro a project like that. But then, of course, we have the whole world of building information modeling and the knowledge that's going into that. Uh, and this is just one example, a new way to manage facility data via common data environments. I do envisage uh, a, a moment when um, we have um, um, holes, all the post-occupancy data will come into BIM and uh, facilities managers will use it. And we will also have the BIM of urban space um, providing information uh, on how things are used and how things have been used in the past. In my university, we have archaeologists using a lot of BIM. Um, you know, it's, it's just a way of putting data into a into a into a, um, a model or a map or so on. And uh, so, increasingly, um, projects will be totally virtually designed before they happen. And hopefully, we are going to be ironing out a lot of error on the way. But it's who's going to be in charge of those models is the question. So we really, really need to get our together um, on um, 
knowledge and how data and how we collect it. Now, um, professional judgment is this hazy thing that um, architects do all the time. They do a lot of judging, they do a lot of critiquing, they stand up and um, get together, and there's an amazing amount of consensus on what uh, architects think is a good thing. And uh, I don't want to discount this, although it can't be evidenced in any very scientific way, because I believe that architects in this, certainly in the UK, seven years of training, of designing, designing, iterating, designing, 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 drawing, 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 doing it again and again and again. There's an embodied knowledge that comes into you that enables you to know what works well. Um, and I don't think we should discount this. So this is just, um, I went to this office, Doug and Morris, a couple of weeks ago, and you know this was on their shelf. So this is their facade designs in evolution. And, and these are things... There is judgment that's developed through the practice of architecture of what starts to work. And I think um, we need to give recognition to that. But as one developer said to me, good design should be a given. It should be that at the end of architectural training, you come out and you are a good designer. Uh, wouldn't that be nice? Um, but actually, so then if good design is a given, it's all the other things that make you employable and interesting and useful to your client. So what might they be? So one of the things I argue in the book is that architects need to say with a great deal of precision what it is they do. And this is really key for collaboration because while there's haze and mystery about the roles of different people, it doesn't make for good relationships uh, in the collaborative team. Um, so I, um, I argue that architects are the only profession that solves problems in terms of space and time. And I was asked to come up with a set of keywords to be used by the research uh, councils in the UK on uh, you know, what architects do do. You know, uh, that was one. But unless we take control of these keywords and the way they, are, they play out in the internet, we will find that Google, who are, who, are, who are in charge of, have made it a project to organize all the world's knowledge, uh, they will take over and it will, will get a very North American view of what an architect is and the search terms and all these things. We have to be very active in this world. Um, so I made a, had a stab of uh, trying to list out in the book the nature of uh, architect's knowledge um, and what it is we actually do. Now, this is something that many architects will absolutely bristle at. Uh, but in, in, in I think that there are no satisfactory definitions, certainly within the RIB, there are no satisfactory definitions of what architects do at the moment. And I did this with an awful lot of consultation. And, and what this exercise revealed, there's an, there is a lot of transferable skills that architects know. And, and um, I don't think we give enough credit to that. And that's why architecture is a good education for lots of things. Yes, it is. And I'm fed up with students at the end of their degree coming out and saying, Flora, I don't know what I can do. What can I get a job as? I feel I don't have any skills. Said, that's a terrible indictment. I want the students to know I can do X, Y, Z. I know this, this, this. I know how to write a report. I know how to do research. I think it's really, really important to try and be clear about this stuff. So this, but there is a small body of, 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 of knowledge which is very, very specific to architecture. And the things in red that I list here are things that we learn in architecture school. So I would say that we learn not a great deal of relevance to actual practice of architecture in architecture school, unfortunately. Now, this is just working... Pro it's a provocation, this list, to try and get other people to start um, um, you know, engaging with this. But uh, there are lots... So lot, the things that list what architects do tend to be quite out of date now and haven't taken on the whole 
changes of technology in the digital world, I would say. Um, so I think that uh, you need to be able to say what it is you do, uh, and you need to say why it's valuable. Um, and so we've done a lot of work at the RAB, and I'm sorry about the hideousness of these covers of these reports, but it's has nothing to do with me, on post-occupancy evaluation. And I'm not just interested in energy, I'm interested in cultural, social impact of buildings on people. Uh, so we've done a lot of work on this. And so here's an example of one of the case studies. It's full of case studies, because our practitioners like to learn from practitioners, so we, all my work full of practitioner case studies. This is a sustainable Marks & Spencer's store. Uh, and it, Marks & Spencer's uh, showed very, uh, Orchid Swank, who designed it. It became very, very clear that the very good design meant that people spent far more time in the shop, enjoyed shopping, came and shopped, and bought more things. Slightly kind of uh, paradoxical to have a sustainable store that makes you buy more things. <laughs> but uh, Marks & Spencer's has become a very um, uh, ethical uh, shop, actually. They're really, really taking a big care with that. So, you know, that, so I think that's a very potent me message to clients. So this is a Maggie's Centre, um, and, and this uh, project would, uh, was subject to a, a social return on investment monetizing as exercise to show, and it really showed the value of good design um, in the long term um, for, for the clients and for the patients of this building. Obviously, in healthcare, it's a real problem that often the people who procure the, the building, that the, and it's not the same budget as the people who have to run the building or pay for the medicines or whatever, and, and so people don't necessarily care when they're designing about that stuff so much. I think I lost a slide there. Oh, no, I didn't. But this, this is, I am a very, very big fan of this firm, Archetype, uh, in Britain, who have taken post-occupancy incredibly seriously. They're getting it to the point that they are very soon going to be able to guarantee the performance of their buildings, both in terms of sustainable, well, that largely in terms of environmental performance, but their social performance is, is incredibly good. And this blonde-haired lady at the front of this picture is Tina. She's the headmistress of one of the schools that they design, and she's so passionate about the importance of their architecture. She goes around talking about how fabulous architect, archetype are. Um, so there's a very interesting report came out literally a month ago in, in the UK, Procuring for Value. And it's and loud and proud, it shows what we need to do is have a very uh, multidimensional uh, view of value and procurement. And social value is, is very, very high on that agenda. And this is why I'm incredibly hopeful. I got interviewed on the radio for, for uh, prior to coming um, to do this talk, and I was very, very positive about what's possible, um, to, much to the scepticism of the guy who was interviewing me. But I think that we really have a chance now to, to, to get our, our, ourselves onto the agenda. So I think to be a valuable architect, you need to be able to speak the language of research. And we wrote this book, Domestifying Architectural Research, with a whole ton of practitioner case studies to try to get across that practitioners are doing research all the time. We just don't talk about it like that. And we, we talked about these practitioner case studies. We put them in the format of uh, AIMS methodologies, the standard format of a, a research project to try to get across that it can be done. And to valorise, actually, I got very excited, particularly with case studies around a single woman practitioner in Northern Ireland who has made a fantastic tool for um, eliciting what the client wants from, from their homes. And, you know, I'm just very happy that her work is celebrated as a really world-class piece of research. And that's, I think, the way we need to go. Um, now, 
architects always borrowing research methodologies from other places. You know, we have to use, I don't know, all manner of other philosophies and theories and whatnot. But um, actually, I would argue, and the distinct research methodology of architects is, and the kind of drum roll here, it is design studio. It's what we do all the time. We do design studio. We do it in our training, in, our cr in crits, and uh, we do it in um, developing projects uh, collaboratively with others. And um, other people are making a lot of money calling this uh, design thinking or other things. But it's absolutely fundamental to what we do. And actually, our design studio is being stolen. Well, I wouldn't say stolen, borrowed by business people at Stanford University and so on. It's been borrowed by social scientists um, trying to work with other kinds of communities. And we just don't valorize Design Studio as a fantastic co-production method of knowledge. Um, and, I, and so I think we need to give Design Studio the dignity that it deserves and to celebrate it and to get out and show that uh, you know, uh, this, is, this is a proper research methodology that we have at our fingertips. So I think also that architects need to be totally interdisciplinary. And um, it's become widely recognised that you know, in order to create more value in innovation and so on, you need to work across brown boundaries and work with other kinds of disciplines and areas. Um, and uh, I think that in particular, uh, we are not working effectively with creative industries as architects. I think that architects sit between construction and the creative industries and we are not mediating between the two to really think about potential of the creative industries and the digital economy uh, for, what, for what we do. And if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it very fast. Um, I think architects, they need to work closely with academia. And I did the strategic research review at Melbourne University earlier this year, and these are a couple of Australian examples of uh, research projects being done with practitioners and uh, with acad academics. And, um, uh, and you know, these are all good things that uh, I think we really, really need to promote and uh, develop together. The UK profession has just done a terrific own goal in not getting any of the 80 billion pounds of research euros that came out through Horizon 2020, which is one uh, research um, um, uh, funding source. And there's another one coming through industry strategies, but we've got to be ready for this stuff. So, um, and I, this is Sarah Wigglesworth, who, um, Sarah Wigglesworth, architect, excellent architect. But she, so this is, she had this well project and she, she got a million and a half pounds to just work on the design of housing for old people. Now, this is I just I use this as a shining example because it enabled she wanted to use this research project as a way to access new markets and to get into new things. And I think that research enables architects to get into new territories that they haven't done. And I've seen in many cases tiny practices use research to lever themselves into, they've suddenly got into much bigger practices or they've got a name for example, um, being people who know all about how kids play out. And, they, uh, and then that, that suddenly gives them more and more kudos and they meet clients in the right kind of way. Um, so anyway, so that's a, a way of diversifying your, your funding streams. And in the UK, I mean, you haven't have got a boom and bust economy. You haven't had so far, and long may it last, uh, incredible boom and bust that we go through. Um, so I believe that uh, research will make practices much more resilient as they go through those things.
Now, I don't know if anybody here speaks Dutch, but I think this is a wonderful example. This is the Dutch BNA, uh, which is the Dutch RIBA. And what they do, this lady, Jutta, in this picture, she um, goes and gets, there's a problem they have, like underused schools in the north of the Netherlands. And she goes and gets little bits of cash from people who are stakeholders in this problem. And then she has a design competition, a research competition that she sets up. And it's choreographed in order to get architects to talk to, I don't know, pharmacists or um, doctors or digital app designers or people that they wouldn't normally talk to. It's, it, it's curated to bring together teams to work together. And I think this is a wonderful model. Uh, and uh, not expensive, and it's one I'm desperate to roll out uh, within the RIBA, because we have to foster interdisciplinary innovation if we're going to move on. Now, um, increasingly, our, uh, um, architects are doing um, PhDs, and you know, the RMIT model is very famous, coming out uh, 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 of Melbourne, <coughs> and the RMIT model was rolled into this big European project adapter, which was rolled out right across Europe. And people say good things and bad things about um, that particular PhD model. But we have a lot of practitioners who are doing practice PhDs about practice in a very pragmatic way. And this is a very exciting world that's really starting to generate. So really trying to get practitioners into universities and vice versa. Not easy, not easy to make an event that a practitioner will want to come out of their practice and go to a university and talk about stuff. So we did this um, uh, a conference at Reading that was absolutely done to do this. And it was hard, but it was amazingly rewarding to try and to make an event like that. Other places where practices and universities can get together, we have a, um, when I was at, head at Sheffield, we set up this urban living lab in Sheffield, Sheffield Liveworks, which is kind of urban space for discussion of architecture in that space. And I think those are, are really, uh, architecture centres, urban rooms are a really, really great place for architectural academia to get together. Fab labs. If you live in a, a city centre, you can have access to all sorts of amazing digital um, uh, uh, construction stuff and testing stuff, but it's not like that if you happen to live outside the city. And this is a fab lab in Umeå University in Sweden. And I love this fab lab because it's, it's freely available to the community who can come in and do a laser cut of their Christmas card or whatever they want to do. But it's also a lab where they are digitally printing the first sawdust uh, house made of sawdust and glue. Uh, and I think, you know, these, I think these are real nerves, potential nerve centers at the heart of our community. And you know, I just wanted to make the point, so this is, you know, this is experimentation by Zahadid architects. They don't actually have any uh, laboratories based themselves. They do it all through, um, most of it through um, their work with the Architectural Association and University College London. Uh, and, and you know, really very fine example of, sort of synergy between a school of architecture and um, a practice. So practice and academia really need to work together. Practices really have to be skilled at managing knowledge and time. I've got to manage my own knowledge and time right now. Um, in the UK, 60% of architects have no business plan. It's completely disaster. How can you build a practice on shifting sands, uh, you know, just chasing the projects willy-nilly, whatever, and it really it's something that has to change. Um, and I would be willing to bet that the most successful practices, unless you happen to just be, have an amazing name for something very specific, but most of the successful practices are very, very strategic. And this is Perkins and Will, who are you know, one of the world's biggest practice, but they are 
very, very positively strategizing about research um, in going into the future. And uh, look, practices uh, spend time thinking about their nature of their organization, who's doing what, in what time, and this is just one organogram developed by Arthur Hall, Monaghan and Morris, who's a very successful practice in London. But, um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing more presentation, more representations of practices and organizations, because we need to think about the business model of practice. Um, Hawkins Brown, this is a little uh, um, diagram they made on how they spend their time. They haven't actually put their research time in there. They have a very good research team. But, you know, I think these things are things we have to be very forensic about. And I was talking with Andrew about it yesterday, that um, there's research coming out that shows how bad architects are with their timesheets. Uh, if you know, They just um, don't want to fill, fill them out. If they feel the project needs finishing, they'll just keep on working, keep on working, while other professions just stop uh, and say, you know, enough's enough. And um, <clears throat> this, this side was uh, this is done by a sale architects, a very successful practice, and they did it. They said, oh, Flora's going to like this one. And they, indeed I do, because it shows they wanted to get into the new build-to-rent sector, which is a very big sector in the UK, and they showed exactly how many hours they put in, into this re researching and developing R&D in this sector, and actually how their fee income in that sector has grown over the last five years. It's very, very clear rep representation of the, the value of becoming a thought leader uh, and researcher in that, in that area. And <clears throat> so it doesn't have to be big practices. Little, this is a little, very, very innovative practice, a studio in London, and they're doing, they're growing mushroom houses and doing really amazing sort of things. But they have on their wall of their practice, they have their research um, strategic plan. And it's on the wall of reception for there for everyone to think about and to remember. So you really have to be strategic and think how best to use your time and to make time for research and to make time for thinking. So I think that architects need to offer different services than just architecture. And we have this thing, the RIBA plan of work, which supposedly describes all the stages of uh, architects' activity. Except that plan stage zero and stage one have an enormous amount of research and effort all bundled into these tiny little uh, columns. Uh, and so we're doing a lot of work on overlays to show, um, to pull out what really, the, the, the massive amount of work that's happening and therefore what people should be paid for. This is a roadmap. This is an industrial designer, Sebastian Conran, a roadmap for designing, say, a Nigella Lawson cookware set. And you can bet your boots, you know, analyze, discuss, um, agree, etc. You can bet your boots that each of these stages is a stage in which they are paid for. So why are we bundling this enormous amount of stuff that architects do right into one word like research or not, you know, a briefing or something like that at the start of the process? We have to disaggregate things. And uh, I gather a couple of years ago, Indy Johar of Architecture Zero Zero was here talking at the, the Architecture Fest. They're very, very good at uh, showing all the other kinds of services that they offer. And in fact, I think that they make more money out of their management consultant type services and they are, they are a diaspora of DGW, um, than they do out of buildings, though they do find buildings too. And increasingly, architects I know generally are very averse to being focused. Don't want to be focused in, at all. But in order to raise your revenues, you need to be focused. You need to have specialism. I suppose it depends what you call a specialism, really. And I think that architects going forward are designing user experiences that an um, awful lot of architecture is going to be digitized 
much sooner than any of us anticipate. It's going to be an awful lot of architecture is humdrum and repetitive, and it's going to be digitized. So what we have left is the experiences and transformations and, and how you take clients through the journey and how you develop the narrative of buildings uh, as journeys and as brands. So the experiences of people in, in, in eliciting what they want, um, uh, experience of making a community, experience of working with communities once the building is finished. All these things, I think, are the stuff of architecture. This is a nice one. Piers Taylor, I gather, worked with Glenn Merkett over here. Um, he's doing a PhD with me. But this building, Western Arboretum, was built with people who had no experience of building whatsoever. So his research is about the transformation of people through building things themselves. Um, so architects pop up in all kinds of places, and we have to be, celebrate that. Uh, and I think that um, last time I was here, I took this photograph of this Australian facilities management magazine, because th facilities management is one of the biggest growing uh, industries, in the, certainly in the UK. And I think that facilities managers have an incredible amount to gain from good architecture in the long term. Uh, and we really, really need to work with them. Other kinds of uh, professions, like uh, lawyers and so on, are... Developed, de delivering their services through apps more and more, enabling to them to put, apply their brain cells to other kinds of things, like generating passive income. And I believe that we should be teaching architecture students to earn money while they're asleep. You know, this is what we should aspire to, to make to, architects love toolkits and making uh, things, uh, but they to, to enable people to do stuff, but they just do them one off again and again and again. But we can, we, these are things that we could be capitalizing on. And I think Gary Technologies are really interesting because they, um, Gary makes a lot of money out of the software to design those funky shapes. Gary Technologies being a side shoot of Gary, um, I think that's, that's the kind of thing we need to think about. This is a very scary website. This is a website where you can buy an entire building, all its working drawings, everything, just off a website for a couple of thousand pounds. Okay, so I want architects going forward to be paid properly. To be valuable, they need to be paid properly. There's been a thing in Britain recently, brickies are earning more than architects in the UK at the moment. And if you bear in mind that average architecture students now coming out with $200,000 of debt, uh, it's just not funny. So we have to drive up the value of um, architects' pay. Um, huge gender divisions in terms... There's been shock and horror as, as practices have had to show the gender divide in terms of earnings. Foster's 28% difference in gender pay gap going on. Uh, we have to pay people properly. We have to pay people equitably. We have to be diverse and inclusive because actually diversity drives innovation. If you have a diverse community, you have more ideas, you are able to appeal to more of the population. And we have to think that way. And uh, we have to think really, really creatively about designing our own businesses. How can we claim to help others in the design of their own worlds, their buildings, the way they organize themselves, the way they interact, if we are so poor at designing our own businesses and our own organizations? So this is a nice example by Page and Park, excellent Scottish architects, but they were being used as an example of the design economy. And it's great when you see architects coming up in wider creative industry discussions. It doesn't happen very often. So we have to really invest in people. Uh, we cannot pay people nothing anymore. We have to make space for ideas. And people are constantly saying to me, but there's no money for, for, for doing research. 
Well, some practices are making space time and they are doing research and they are seeing their earnings go up. So um, I really hope that this has inspired you to think about the nature of um, the way that uh, you express uh, value in your work. Thank you very much for listening. was Professor Flora Samuel discussing why architects matter at the 2018 Sydney Architecture Festival. Thank you, of course, to our Sydney Architecture Festival event partners, Cement, Concrete and Aggregates Australia, the Built Environment Channel, Rodeo, and of course, the Sydney Opera House. Thanks for listening to Architecture Insights. I'm your host, Di Snape.